coming up on this week's episode of Check Your Balances, 10 Takeaways from Warren Buffett's 2021 Letter to Berkshire Hathaway Shareholders. What investing lessons can you take away from this? Stick around. We'll break it down. Check Your Balances is a show produced and owned by Craftwork Capital. The views expressed by the hosts and their guests are personal opinions and should not be considered personal financial advice or the opinion of Craftwork Capital. All investments have risk and may lose money. Consult with your financial advisor, tax preparer, or attorney prior to implementing anything discussed, and please do not use this show as the sole basis for financial decisions. Welcome, everybody, to Check Your Balances. I am Ross Anderson, joined by my partner and friend, Dan Maseka. Dan, how you feeling? I'm feeling great because today we are talking about the person who I deemed a couple episodes back, the Betty White of investing, Warren Buffett. I think that's a good analogy, and I think both Warren Buffett and Betty White would be happy that you're making that comparison. I can only hope so. Now, I do need to say just uh, at the outset here, we're going to be talking a lot about Berkshire Hathaway and Warren Buffett not as a recommendation or a you know a advice to buy or not buy uh, Berkshire Hathaway's stock. We're really talking about it from the investing lessons that we can take out of Warren's annual shareholder letter uh, and some of the things that we found particularly interesting. Um, but this is not a commentary on, on Berkshire as a stock. And, and going back to the letter, I think it's a particularly interesting year because there were no major breakthrough revelations in his note. Uh, where you might expect, you know, some commentary on a, a lot of the things we've seen, the pandemic, GameStop, a major announcement of an acquisition. None of that w was there. But I think we were still able to find some great takeaways uh, as we look to our own investing process and, and philosophy. I mean, the only reference to COVID that I can remember from the letter was in two places. Number one, where he talks about not being able to do the annual meeting in person and where he talks about one of their furniture businesses being shut down for six weeks and still delivering record profits. Those, those are the only two references that come to mind. I mean, it, it was a, it was barely a footnote of, of this letter in a year where, where that would have been uh, easily the, the headline for a lot of folks. All right. So let's turn to the first takeaway from Warren Buffett's letter. For me, that first takeaway is how he emphasizes that stock ownership is business ownership. When he talks about how Berkshire invests in marketable securities, he directly correlates that to being a partner with the businesses you're investing in. And you should look at their earnings as your earnings. And I, I think that's fundamental to the way that I look at businesses and the way that I encourage people to look at businesses. When you're buying a stock, you're really becoming a small partner in the business you're buying. Yeah, I, th I think that's incredibly powerful and also tough for people to do, honestly. I mean, that, that that's a simple, simple takeaway. But you get such immediate feedback when you purchase a stock, right? Within minutes, you can be seeing you know pretty active price movements, right? You're, you're constantly watching this supply and demand mechan mechanism reprice the thing you just bought. And, and you could buy a business and a day later be having regrets about buying it because now it looks like it's worth less in your account. Uh, and if you think about it in those contexts of if I'm buying a business, if if you met with a partner or a friend or a colleague and they said, I'd like you to invest in my business, what time period would you be measuring that on? I can, I can almost guarantee it's not going to be in minutes and hours and, and days, right? Uh, and and I, I think that's kind of one of the first keys is to kind of extending that 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 outlook. But he also talks about what they look for in good companies, which is strong management, 
competitive strengths price a lot of the same things that you and I talk about quite a bit. And uh, I don't think it was on purpose, but price is the last one there, which I really appreciate because I think that competitive strength and strong management can overcome price in, in many regards. So I don't think that was his intention, but that's certainly uh, the way I looked at it. All right. So let's talk about my next takeaway, which is it doesn't have to be hard or complicated to be successful. He kind of makes an analogy to diving, which is that you don't get points for difficulty when it comes to investing. Uh, and I've seen this play out in, in a bunch of different ways. And I really appreciate the way he kind of frames this because Buffett has said in the past, plenty of people could mirror what we do. They just aren't patient enough for it. And I've seen that when when you're dealing with investors that uh, are of a certain net worth and and believe that their situation is complicated, they tend to want more and more complicated solutions to kind of match the complexity that they view themselves with. Uh, and that's really the opposite way to go. You can take complexity out of your investing and still be very, very successful with it. Uh, and I love that he kind of drives that point home. And he also talks about it in the sense of whether or not you've got controlling interest in a business or simply just an economic interest. Right? When you buy a full company, you're really taking over control. You're likely paying a control premium because that, that company could become more valuable to you. Uh, and he kind of goes the other way and says, we don't have to take control of the business to be very, very successful. And I think that's a great thing for people to to remind themselves of. As it relates to not having to be difficult to be good, Warren Buffett does say that a patient and level-headed monkey can construct a portfolio by throwing 50 darts at just a list of all the S&P 500 names and over time should enjoy a portfolio that does well. Dan, I, are you referring to us as monkeys at this point? I certainly am. <laughs> the third point that I took away from Warren Buffett's letter is he says pretty strongly that bonds are not the place to be these days. Uh, in the context in which he brings that up is in relation to Berkshire Hathaway's float. What float means for them are all the insurance premiums that they pull in from their insurance business that they don't have to pay out yet for claims. So they have access to all this money that they can keep basically interest-free that they can use to invest in all sorts of things. Berkshire Hathaway has a float of $138 billion, which is allowing them to buy bonds if they want to, invest in equities or all sorts of securities, and uh, let that amount grow over time so that they have it available to pay claims. Now, it's not a direct comparison, but I thought about that in terms of personal finance and building my own personal float. And when I think of float, I think of that cash carve out element as well as equity investing so that you have what you need to take care of your short term liabilities. So for Berkshire, that would be their expected claims paying over the next few years or, you know, even potentially a longer term. And then the remainder allows them to be more aggressive than others because they have their short term needs taken care of. So as it relates to bonds, they're talking about other insurance companies that need to accept the evil of bonds, which are paying nothing and and really not attractive propositions, whereas Berkshire doesn't have to do that. So I think thinking in the equity mentality and taking care of your short-term needs and uh, extending the time horizon on everything else is the way I looked at that. I know it's a little bit of a stretch, um, but that's how it spoke to me. It's an important takeaway, but it's also a little bit tough for me to read and and, and only from this sense, right? If you're somebody that's approaching retirement and 
you're looking at what your options are to not own equities, right? Because that's kind of our core fundamental thing is we don't want money you're going to need in the short term to be in equities because we think owning equity and owning stocks is a long-term proposition. And so for the shorter term money, you need an alternative, which for a lot of people is cash and bonds. And I think he's correctly stating that bonds are not going to be particularly attractive, which just makes it tougher and tougher for people to accept them. Uh, and, And in that sense, it's it's not that I, I think he's wrong. I, I think he's spot on, but I do think reading something like that makes it difficult because we need to remember and really anchor ourselves heavily to what is the purpose of this asset in our portfolio. And if that asset's purpose is safety, then that's what's going to be paramount. And the thing with bond investing is that there's really no free lunch, right? You look at the the 10-year treasury right now, which is at about 1.45, and that's up over the last few weeks. Um you know, you're locking your money up for 10 years in exchange for less than a one and a half percent yield. So when you start stretching, what you're doing generally is looking for a riskier issuer, somebody that's more open to default, more likely to default, or you're going out even further than 10 years and you're going into 20 and 30 year bonds where your duration, your interest rate sensitivity goes way up or, or even you're going to something illiquid, right? If you're going to something that isn't easily tradable on the market or uh, able to be exchanged highly illiquid securities may have a higher yield to them, but there is no free lunch when it comes to bonds. And I hope that people don't go kind of searching for a really risky asset to fit into what is otherwise supposed to be the safe portion of their portfolio. Buffett says that risky loans are not the answer to inadequate interest rates, and that three decades ago, a once mighty savings and loan industry destroyed itself by ignoring that that advice. Takeaway number four for me, is Buffett talking about viewing his investors as partners? You know, he he says although our form is corporate, our attitude is partnership, and I really appreciated that. And he's got reverence both for for the investors that have assets with Berkshire, as well as with for his customers. Uh, and that comes through at a couple different places where he talks about delighting the customer. That reverence is really appreciated for somebody like me, where I want to place capital with a manager that's going to have reverence and respect for the fact. That they're having that capital is a form of trust, uh, and I look at some of the CEOs that operate public companies today, and I'm not sure that I always see that. I think some of them are a little bit more of a gunslinger mentality, and I'm not going to call out specific names here. But there's some people where you you just get a sense that they don't respect that capital as being important as long as it helps them do what they wanted to do. And I see the opposite with Buffett. I really appreciate that that he's treating the investors with that reverence and and uh, basically saying, I'm going to take care of you as if it was my own money. And I think he's expecting the same from the companies he's investing in on behalf of Berkshire as well. The fact that he's not looking necessarily to take a majority stake in every business he buys and is trusting that the management of those companies are also going to be good stewards of his money, I think is a nice parallel between those two sides. Agreed. So my fifth takeaway from the letter is that owning failure does not make you a failure. Buffett owns some missteps early on in his note. Uh, I think the biggest one is his failure to acquire precision cast parts at a price that he thought was um, fair. He he miscalculated that and they took a pretty big write down as a result. Uh, He also talks about their two priorities every year being to grow operating income and to acquire new businesses and how in 2020 he missed on both of those counts as well. So I think what's refreshing is his ability to own that outright and not try to hide that. And the takeaway for me is that if you're afraid to accept failure, you might make other mistakes in your business in the pursuit of avoiding that. 
So I think it's admirable that he gets that out of the way early on and and owns those um, those steps and and owns the misstep with uh, precision cast parts very directly. There's a couple spots in here where he kind of talks about the contribution of certain businesses when you think about them as part of your portfolio, that some are not going to contribute meaningfully at all, or, or he, he doesn't say that they may detract from value, but that's clearly what he means. And some are going to deliver outsized gains. And I think that's a lot of how we think about a stock portfolio. You're not necessarily going to get all of your picks right. And even if you only get a small portion of them right, as long as those winners can deliver that outsized gain. Uh, you can do very, very well. It doesn't have to be a hundred percent hit rate or, or success rate. But if you're too scared to invest in something that might turn out to be a failure, you might also miss out on those outsized gainers. So that's why I love the mentality that he takes. And, and by the way, he doesn't say that it was a bad company. He just says he he mispriced it. He was a little too optimistic. All right. So speaking of uh, overpaying, my next takeaway was a section where Warren talks a little bit about overpaying for companies, but doing so with inflated stock. And he gives kind of a funny analogy of, I'll pay $10,000 for your dog as long as what you will accept for that $10,000 is my two $5,000 cats. That you tend to see people making deals with overinflated assets, and they've kind of baked that pricing into their own deal. Uh, And I think if you're using those comparables to evaluate other transactions in the marketplace, you really run a high risk. So just the way that that when homes sell, they kind of justify your home valuation by looking at comparable sales in, in the market around you. This happens in public and, and private markets as well, where these are kind of benchmark transactions. And so if you're using kind of a an inflated price benchmark transaction, that can lead to kind of this cycle of more and more of these going on. Uh, and so when you're looking at an acquisition that a company you own is making or, or at a co- company that's being acquired, I think you've got to be really conscious of that. Was, was it a cash deal? Was it a stock deal? And, and then what signal is that sending? Um, so I think that there's a lot of things that we can just be very considerate of uh, because of that. And I, I think it was a great way to illustrate the problem. I've heard that being the reason that a lot of people are afraid of investing in the market. They're scared that all these prices are inflated by things that are happening on the back end when really there might not be as much value there backing those companies up. And in that way, it just comes down to being disciplined and, and understanding what you're owning and, and and whether or not that's something you want to be a long-term owner of. Speaking of long-term ownership, my seventh takeaway was how Warren describes the power of stock repurchases and how stock buybacks over time can have a really significant compounding effect. So what a stock repurchase means is that a company takes cash that it has and uses it to buy back shares of its own business, meaning that there are fewer shares outstanding in the marketplace. As an investor, that means that the shares I own are a higher percentage of that company now just because there are fewer shares out there, which also means that the portion of revenue attributed to me and the portion of earnings is higher because I have a higher percentage. Yeah, the example that he uses here is that uh, in cash, they bought basically 5.2% of Apple o- over the course of a couple of years, even though they've sold some of that because Apple was doing share repurchases, what they now own is 5.4% of Apple, which you know, 0.2% doesn't sound like a big deal or a big portion of a company until you apply that size to a company like Apple. And it re- you realize that's a huge impact. And I just think share repurchases are kind of un- underseen in terms of a, a return of capital to shareholders, right? Everybody seems to look for dividends and think about dividends as a company that's 
very profitable and, and returning uh, capital to shareholders in that way. But a share repurchase is doing effectively the same thing, just without forcing you to recognize that income uh, in the year that it's being paid out. All right. So takeaway number eight. Uh, Dan, this really should be yours because I think this is almost your in- entire investing philosophy in one statement. But boring is beautiful. Uh, and and that's really, he, he talks about a number of things um, that it's easy to overlook the miracles that are occurring in middle America uh, and, and how many cool business stories they have uh, in some of their lesser known, lesser tech driven, quite frankly, boring companies, but that are, are producing year over year really great results. And he states that they've been serving hamburgers and Coke for 56 years, really as an analogy for that, that they're they're kind of in some of these uh, less sexy businesses, quite frankly, uh, but, but that can continue to deliver incredible results for their shareholders. And what I like is they're not pretending to be something they're not. They are serving hamburgers and Coke. And I think the analogy he gives is they're not trying to serve French cuisine, cuisine all of a sudden, or Worse yet, serve hamburgers to one person, French cuisine to someone else. They are what they are. That being said, you know he does talk about some of the investments that they're making, uh, and I was particularly struck by uh, what he mentioned on Berkshire Hathaway Energy. You know, I don't know that when you think Berkshire Hathaway, you think clean energy, but they are making an eighteen billion dollar investment on a twenty-four year timeline. They started investing in two thousand six on a project that won't be completed until 2030 on some really incredible infrastructure and, and clean energy uh, transmission lines. Um, and they sound like really complicated deals. And as you think about boring businesses, clean energy is probably not one of them, right? There's a lot of hype around the clean energy cycle. But, but I do think you know, you're getting some exposure there that maybe you don't expect to uh, when you think about what's under the hood of Berkshire. Talk about a long time horizon, 24 years investment into that infrastructure. Yeah. I mean, and and, and most utilities are, are paying a dividend and, and basically BHE isn't because of that. They're, they're kind of taking all their available cash flow in order to do that, which, uh, again, I think is a very, very long view sort of play, um, but, but also an impressive one. My ninth takeaway from the letter is that people make businesses. So Warren Buffett highlights some of the people who founded the companies that Berkshire Hathaway has invested in, whether that be Mary C. and her candy company, Jack Ringwalt and National Indemnity. And I really love this because I personally believe, and I know Ross and I both use founders, uh, both weigh a founder's involvement very heavily as we're deciding whether or not to invest in a company. Um, But those founders really shape the businesses that they're creating. And it's important to to put money behind people who you feel are dynamic, have a good good grasp on their businesses and good long-term vision. So I loved hearing those stories. And it speaks a little bit back to what Ross was talking about earlier, you know, knowing who you are and and the miracles occurring in middle America. But but hearing those stories of those individuals was great. And I think, you know, Warren Buffett has his own story with Berkshire Hathaway that he weaves into there as well. As you're investing, I, I really encourage you to put a focus on who's running the company, who founded the company, and to what extent they're involved. Companies tend to get talked about as this like nebulous thing, like the company did something. Companies don't do anything, right? People at companies make decisions, and, and those decisions have results. Companies by themselves have no no free will to make decisions. Uh, and, and so you know, understanding those decision makers and, and whether or not those are people that you trust with your capital, I think, is a big piece of investing. Um, that that we take seriously. 
All right, so number 10, uh, my final takeaway, and this is probably a takeaway that you could have had from any of Warren Buffett's letters to shareholders through the entire time he's been running Berkshire Hathaway, but that is just about thinking long-term. You know, and, and we've kind of woven this through a couple other points, but uh, to be successful as an equity investor, that's really the requirement. And so to do that as a retail investor, as somebody that also has capital needs from our portfolios, I think that's the big challenge that that Dan and I feel like we face and, and that we try and help people tackle, which is how do you marry the real world needs of somebody that has capital things that they want to spend money on, right? You've saved your money for a purpose. And and maybe your goal isn't the same as Warren's goal, which Warren Buffett is now 90 years old, and he's writing letters talking about decades into the future on his company, right? That's just his outlook. That's the way he thinks. If your goal isn't also to be working at 90, you may need to start repositioning your portfolio and your assets to better serve your unique situation. Uh, and I think that that tension and, and that intersection is really the core of what Dan, you and I do for people. It is, and and it's hard to to think that way if you're approaching retirement and we're talking about investing for the long term. The first question that gets asked is, "I don't have a long term. I, I need money next year." Uh, but it, it's all about balance, right? Yeah, and, and and just creating a system that that you have faith in uh, to do that. And um, you know, again, for us, we've mentioned it a couple times. That's a carve out strategy. That's making sure you've got several years worth of safe assets in place, so that you can allow the things that are supposed to be long term in your portfolio to do that heavy lifting. All right. Well, that is it for our ten takeaways from Warren Buffett's 2021 letter to Berkshire Hathaway shareholders. We hope you found some of that valuable. And if you read the letter and you've got other takeaways, send us an email. We'd love to hear what your thoughts were. Check your balances at outlook.com is the email address for our show. Uh, anything that you thought was particularly interesting in this year's letter, we'd love to feature that as well. Uh, also, I put out a challenge in last week's show to help uh, or, or to have people identify where our music is being used, the theme music to our show. I haven't actually gotten any responses. So either the carrot wasn't big enough and people simply didn't care uh, or nobody's actually heard where the music was uh, being played. But uh, I'll leave that open for one more week. And then after that, uh, I'll go ahead and uh, just share with people. But if you can figure out where our theme music is being used, it's a national ad that's running right now. Uh, I will send gift cards, $5 gift cards to the first five people that identify it. Dan, thanks for joining me as always. And uh, we'll see everybody next week.